I don't know. I think some of you guys are going to miss that video. I'm telling you. Maybe, maybe not. Good to see you this morning. Uh, we are in week three of a three-week series, and if you have been with us for all three weeks, you are one of the real Christians that vacations later in the summer, apparently, but we're glad to have you today. You know where we're at. We're in chapter two of Joel. Go ahead and find your place. As you're looking, I will mention Steve Woodall wanted me to say that he's hosting a prayer meeting this week here at the church. It's going to be on Thursday night from 6.30 to 8. It's floating. You don't have to come for the whole time. But if you've got a need, something you want to pray about, Steve's going to be here. Other people are going to gather to pray. That's going to be in the youth room this Thursday at 6.30. If you're interested in that, mark your calendars to be there. Today is the final installment of our series, Plagues and Purpose. I'll recap briefly for you. In week one, Joel preached of ruin and rebuke. He said that God may allow a plague. He may even arrange one, but he will never waste it because with God, there is always purpose in the plague. We learned that trusting God means we are believing that his purpose is greater than our loss. You cannot change the plagues that you face, but in the plagues, it may be that God changes you. Last week, Joel consecrated a solemn assembly, fasting as a people, repentance, return, just like God, to pursue his people even when we go astray. It doesn't matter where you've been, how long you've been gone, how far in the wrong direction you have gone. You're always one step away from returning home. He expressed grace, mercy, steadfast love, and relented over disaster just like Jesus. Today, we're going to cover chapter 3, but we're going to spend a majority of our time wrapping up Joel chapter number 2. So whether you found your place or not, go ahead and stand with me. Joel chapter number 2, we're going to read verses 18 through 25 this morning. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea, and the stench and the foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things." Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their fruit yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. Plagues and purpose. I have titled this installment, part three, Hello from the other side. Hello from the other side. Point number five. I've got the first four already filled in from previous weeks. Point number five is where we'll pick up today. It's the word redemption. Redemption. Look at verse number 18 again that we read a moment ago. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Bible scholars will tell you that there is some time that has passed between verses 17 and verse 18. For us, it's been a week. That's where we left off with verse 17. But for the people of Judah, some significant time has passed. Uh, back when we got the original autographs and the manuscripts of Scripture, it was all one block text, like it was the book of Deuteronomy, and it was all there. There were no chapter and verse divisions. And I think the, uh, the commentators that put this together, the scholars, started the chapter and verse divisions around 1550, 1557, I think. And then the first Bible to come out with chapters and verses was the Geneva Bible in 1560. And during that time, they did not consult me on where I thought the chapter division should be. It's weird that they did that. I would have made a chapter division between 17 and 18 because Bible commentators will agree that some significant time has passed. It was likely months, if not years, between verse 17 when the people cry out to God and then verse 18 when he answers them, and such is life. Yeah, I don't know how many prayer requests you've had in your life, but if you've had thousands of prayer requests, how many of them did you ask God for and he answered them immediately? Probably very few. 
if any at all. This is the nature of life. This is real life as we ask God for something and we don't get an immediate response. And sometimes we don't get a response at all until some time has passed. So between verses 17 and 18, when Israel or Judah cries out to God and he answers, some significant time has passed. Here's how he would redeem Judah. He does this in a few ways. Letter A, he's redeeming the provisions. He's giving them back what they lost. He's redeeming the things they lost. Verse number 19, the Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. If you were to jump back to chapter number one, verse 10, you see that grain, wine, and oil were destroyed. Verse 10 says the grain was destroyed, the wine was dried up, the oil languishes. In addition to that, they were made a reproach in verse 17. And in verse 19, he says, I will make you no more a reproach and you will be satisfied. Because of repentance and return, God heard the prayers of his people and responded. It's like David said in Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he heard and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6 says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. That's the nature and character of God. I don't want you to miss this principle, okay? I'm going to hit you with this one early on. Deliverance and blessing would come, but not because they sought deliverance and blessing. It came because they sought God. Okay, let that sink in just for a minute. Deliverance and blessing would come, but not because they sought deliverance and blessing. It came because they sought God. You see, we, we sometimes will seek after revival. We want to see revival in our country. We want to see it in our land. We want to see it in our church. We want to see it in our home. But revival does not come when we seek revival. Revival comes when we seek God. Blessing does not come when we seek blessing. Blessing only comes when we seek God. Deliverance doesn't come when we seek after deliverance. It comes when we seek God. We had a worship experience up here today. Worship doesn't come when we seek after worship. It only comes when we seek after God. So blessing and deliverance was what the nation of Judah received, but it was not because they sought after those things. They sought after a relationship with God, and blessing and deliverance was simply a byproduct of seeking after him. The people of Judah were not after redemption. They were after relationship. Where they failed, they repented, they returned, and God welcomed them with open arms like we saw last week. You're one step away from home no matter how far you've been. Redemption by way of blessings, deliverance, grain, wine, oil. These were simply a byproduct to the nation of Judah for seeking after God. Again, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus does. I want to step on your toes for a minute because it's early in the message and there's plenty of time for us to recover. But if you got saved to get into heaven, you'll get there, but you'll miss a lot of what God has in store for you in the Christian life. If that's the only reason you did it, you'll get there, but you'll miss a lot. If the only reason you trusted in Jesus was to get out of hell, you'll get out of hell. You'll accomplish that, but you'll miss a lot of what God has for you in the Christian life. If you came to church today to check off a box, you will accomplish it you'll miss a lot of what God has for you. If you came to appease a spouse or you came because of someone, you'll accomplish that. But if that's the only reason, then you'll miss a lot of what God has for you in the process. He wants a relationship. He's after a relationship with you. God had pity on them. He was jealous for their prayers because they sought a renewed relationship with them. And because they sought him, he also blessed them in return. Look at verse 18. Look at the possessors he uses here. He says it's his land his people. Verse 19, his people. I am sending. I will. These are all personal because it was a personal relationship. We see that because it was a personal relationship. That's what made it a personal redemption. So he redeems the provisions. That's letter A. Letter B, he removes the pestilence. He said, I'm going to redeem the provisions for you but I'm also going to remove the pestilence. I'm going to remove the plague. I'm going to remove what it is that's in your way. Verse 20, he says, I will remove the northerner far from you. The King James translates this, the northern army. A lot of commentators have suggested a dual purpose in this statement. What he was talking about literally was the locust. He was removing the northerner, the locust that came from the north. He was removing them literally. But some have suggested he was also foreshadowing metaphorically the Assyrians who would come from the north and attack the nation of Judah. They hadn't come yet in 800 B.C., but they would come. The Assyrians would come, and what God is saying here is, I remove the locust, 
And when the Assyrians come, when that northerner comes also, I'll remove them too when you cry out to me. This storm is over, but other storms will come. Do you know why? It's because other storms always come. Other storms always come. I don't know what it is you're going through, but eventually you're going to get on the other side of it. And when you get on the other side of it, it's going to be nice for a little bit. And then you're going to go through something else because that's the nature of storms. They, they always come. They come and they come and they come. And there's no stopping them. And so what he's saying here is other storms will always come. There will be more pandemics. There will be more sickness. There will be more storms and plagues and locusts. But when you seek me with all your heart, as you did in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, when you do that again, I'll be there for you again. I'll remove the pestilence then. I'll get it out of your path then. The enemy you are facing today has done great things, but God reminds them, I have too. Verse 21, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful. You ever heard the phrase, uh, God won't put anything on you that you can't handle? Have you found that to not be true? Because God frequently does that, puts things on us that we can't handle in and of ourselves. That's why Paul said it. There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted. Above that you're able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He said, I'm not going to put anything on you that you can't handle without my power and my presence in your life. That's what God is saying to the people of Judah. In verse 21, we are uh, redeeming the provisions. He's removing the pestilence. Let her see. He's rejoicing through patience. I want you to rejoice in the fact that you were patient enough with the trial that you faced. Don't, don't, you don't have to fear any longer. Verse 21, fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, beasts of the field. Pastures are green. The trees bear its fruit. Verse 23, be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. Poured it down for you abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before. One of the commentators that I read after this week is Peter Craigie. He said this of this passage, God's love continued always for his people, but as they turned from him, it was manifest in wrath. As they turned back to him, seeking again the intimate relationship that had been lost, they rediscovered the compassion that was always in the heart of God. They could rejoice today because they were on the other side of the locust. A lot of you today, you're, you're at this stage of the, the plague in your life, the locust storm. You're right here at the very beginning. You don't know how long it's going to last. You hope you're toward the end, but honestly, in theory, you could still be right here at the very beginning of a plague, at the very beginning of something that's going on in your life. And then when you get a little bit further into it, you can look back and say, well, I'm glad I'm not there anymore, but man, I, I wish I could see what's on the other side of this plague. And over time, God's going to eventually bring you to the other side. He's going to get you to the other side of this where you'll look back on it and you'll say, I didn't understand it then. I had no idea, God, what you were up to in 2008, but it was a mess. I have no idea what happened, uh, what you were doing in my life back in 2015 or back when my spouse left or back when my loved one died or back when I lost my job. I had no idea then what you were doing. But Joel says, I, I can see what's on the other side of this locust plague. And if you'll hold on to the end, God has great things in store for you. You can't see it today because you're at the beginning of it. You're in the middle of it. You're in the thick of it. But I'm standing here on the other side, and I want to let you know I have encouragement for you. God is going to bring this about for your good. We have to trust him and his process. It's believing that his, his will and his plan for our life is so much greater than our loss. He's rejoicing through patience. Fill in the blank and tell me you've ever heard this before. Blank heals all wounds. What's the word? Time. You found that not to be true? Time doesn't heal anything. It doesn't. I've had injuries that I've, I've waited on. And, you know, let's shake it off. Let's just see if it's really an injury. And sometimes they feel better. And, you know, sometimes I can't walk anymore. And I have to go to the ER. And there are things that have happened to us. And we, we want to wait to see what, what, what is this going to be. And, and we're rejoicing through patience, but time does not heal all wounds. It's not true. I've, I've not found it to be true. One writer said this, time alone brings no healing, but God does. He uses time, patience, to trap us in his restoring process. Patience and waiting builds strength. And ultimately, you'll get to the other side and you'll look back and you will rejoice. 
There's nothing to rejoice in today. The locust plague has ravished their culture, their crops. Everything has been decimated. They have nothing. Past, present, future, it's all gone. This is not a time to rejoice. My loved one is sick. It's not a time to rejoice. So-and-so's in the hospital. It doesn't look good. It's not a time to rejoice. He says, when you get to the point where you're on the other side, Joel says, I'm on the other side now. But when you get to a point where you're on the other side and you can look back and see where God brought you from, at that, you'll be able to rejoice. You'll rejoice in the patience of your life. Spurgeon says this, you cannot have back your time, but there is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give back wasted blessings of years that you mourned. That's what God is beginning to do in the people of Judah through their prophet Joel. He seeks to do the same for you. Redemption. Number five is redemption. Number six is restoration. This is my favorite point in the whole series. Restoration. Redemption saves you, but restoration brings back all that was lost. Redemption's what saves you, but restoration brings back all that was lost. I'm going to give you a hypothetical illustration. This didn't happen, but it very easily could have, okay? So my wife sends me to Walmart with a few things that I need to pick up. You guys know how that is. Now, I got to have screenshots. I got to have a list. I got to know what aisle it's on. So I go to Walmart, and she says, I need you to pick up some stuff at Walmart. It's about $100 worth of stuff. So I carry with me a $100 bill. Tired of swiping the card. I'm tired of waiting in line. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a $100 bill. So I got my $100 bill, fold it up, put it in my pocket. I go to Walmart. I go to Walmart, and I got my cart, and I'm putting all the stuff in. And I'm checking stuff off the list. I'm putting stuff in my cart. I go to one of those checkout lines that there's an actual person there. I don't go to the self-checkout line. You know why? Because I have $100 worth of stuff. I don't know who needs to hear this, but if you have $100 worth of stuff, you'll need to go to those self-checkout lines and clog up the system for everybody else. Maybe that's the reason you came to church today is to hear that. I go to a line that has a real person and a cashier, and she scans all of my items. And she says, wow, $100 on the dot. And I said, yep, that's the way I planned it. That's the way my wife planned it. And she says, cash your card. And I said, cash, have exactly $100. I reach into my pocket, my $100 bill is gone can't find it. Like I'm pulling the insides of my pockets out. I'm checking all the places my money could be. My $100 bill is gone. Lady says, sir, do you, uh, do you have a credit card? Do you have a debit card? Do you have Apple Pay? Is there any other way you can pay? I'm totally embarrassed. There's a line of people behind me. I have no way of paying for these. I turn around and guess who's behind me in line? Phil Boydson's right there. He's right behind me in line. And he says, Jason, what, what's going on? You don't, you don't have enough money? to pay for your stuff. And I said, Phil, you're not going to believe it. I had a hundred dollar bill. I can't find it anywhere. You know what Phil does? Phil reaches into his pocket, pulls out a hundred bucks, gives it to the lady and said, Hey, this is, this is on me. And I said, Phil, let me, let me pay you back. I'll pay you back, Phil. And he says, no, don't pay me back. I, I just want to do this for you. And I, I write a letter to Phil thanking him for, for this generosity. I tell Karen how blessed she is to have a husband like Phil. And it's just amazing that Phil provided for me. And so I've got the receipt, I've got my stuff and I go out to my car and I'm walking out to the car and I'm thinking, you know, I'm really glad that Phil was there. I don't know what I would have done had Phil not been there and paid for all my stuff, but I'm going to go home. I'm really bummed that I couldn't find that hundred dollar bill. It was in my pocket. I don't know what happened. I get in the car. I'm driving home. I get to a stoplight. I look down on the floor of my car. I find my $100 bill. This is a small illustration of what it means to be restored and redeemed. You see, redemption happened at Walmart with Phil. That's when redemption took place. Redemption happened when you got saved. Redemption happened. It was the instantaneous moment that Phil paid for your salvation. No, that's not right. It's the instantaneous moment when Jesus saved you. That's when redemption took place. For me, in this illustration, redemption took place at the store, but restoration happened in the car because now I'm home, I have $100 worth of stuff, and I still have my $100 bill. So redemption and restoration are different. Redemption saves you, but restoration brings back all that was lost. This is what God is trying to do in the nation of Judah. He's not only interested in redeeming them and establishing a relationship, he also wants to restore them all the things that they lost. 
It's the former rain and the latter rain all at once. In Israel, sometimes they'll get former rains at the beginning of rainy season, and they'll get the latter rains at the end of the rainy season. So what God does here to the nation of Judah is, you've been through the locust plague, you've had drought, you've had fires, pestilence, you've had it all. I'm going to send the early and the latter rain in the first month. And he begins the process of restoration. Letter A, he's restoring the promise. He's restoring the promise, verse 24. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. What began as devastation was going to end in deliverance. Again, they couldn't see this in chapter 1. They couldn't see this in chapter 2. When we left off last week in verse 17, they couldn't see what God was going to do. But here he redeems them and restores them. This is who God is. His desire to give grace and mercy and compassion and blessing. They're full and overflowing. How many times do we choose a life of average? when God wants us to live in abundance. I'm not talking about financial abundance. I'm not talking about physical abundance with having good health. How often do we settle for average when God wants us to live in a life of spiritual abundance? I want to overflow what you're doing in your life. Not physically, not financially. I want to overflow my presence in your life. I want to do something in you that can have no other explanation than it being me. And yet so many times we settle for average. Verse 25 is the hallmark verse of Joel's entire message. I really hesitated to get to chapter 2, verse 25, because I wanted to talk to you about it in, verse, in chapter 1, week 1. Because week 1 was kind of bleak, and we needed verse 25 in week 1, but I kind of hesitated. And then I wanted to get to it last week, and I ran out of time, but today we're going to get to verse 25. This is the hallmark verse of all that Joel wrote. You don't have to be great at math to know that Joel wrote 73 verses, and this is the number one verse. This is it. 31,000 verses in Scripture, Joel got to pen 73 of them, which is less than a quarter of 1%. And if you get anything else out of Joel's life, the central theme of his entire message to the nation of Judah is verse number 25. Let's read it, verse 25. God says to Joel, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. A literal Hebrew rendering of verse 25 reads like this, I will pay you back for the years. I'll pay you back for the years that the locust took. And I read that and I think to myself, you can't possibly. You can pay me back financially, you can make someone whole again. You can bring back the crops. But how do you redeem the time? How, how do you give me back the years that were taken away? How do you give me back the years that I sat in the hospital with someone as they died? How do, how do I get back the years from the marriage that ended in divorce? How do I get back the years from the kid that doesn't want to follow Jesus anymore? How do I get that back? How do I redeem the time there? He says, I will pay you back for the years that the locust took. A couple weeks ago, I was reading a few stories about wrongful sentencing in the court system, and I want to share one with you that happened about a decade ago. man's name was Steve Titus. He was 30 years old and a resident of Seattle and engaged to be married back in 2013. One night, Steve Titus was driving home from dinner, and he was pulled over by a police officer because his car resembled another car matching the description of a man who had previously that night raped a female hitchhiker. Local police pulled him over and uh, said, um, can I help you? And the police officer said, well, your car kind of matches a description of a vehicle that we're looking for. doesn't match it exactly, but we're kind of looking for a car similar to yours driven by a guy that, that could meet your description. He said, I'm just going to take your license and registration. I'm going to take a picture of you if that's okay. And he's, he didn't have anything to hide. He said, sure. Gave him his license, registration, let him take a picture went on his way. A couple days later, um, the local police took his picture, added it to a lineup, and the woman who was raped, the victim, pointed at Steve Titus's picture, and she said, quote, that one is the closest. On the witness stand, Steve Titus was brought in. The victim pointed at him and said, that's him. Steve had an alibi. He had witnesses. There was no physical evidence linking him to the crime, but he was convicted and sentenced to prison. From behind bars, Steve Titus hired an investigative journalist who followed the evidence and actually tracked down the real offender. But it took five years. 
Can you imagine being in five years in prison for a crime that you did not commit? It's unbelievable. I, I can't imagine. I, I went through the mental exercise of what that would be like. I can't imagine going away for a couple days or a week, especially for something that I didn't do. There are laws in 36 states that provide money to exonerees, averaging about $50,000 each year served in prison for wrongful sentencing. So five years at $50,000 a year, I'm not an accountant, I went to Bible college, but that comes up to $250,000. I don't know about you, but I could use a quarter of a million dollars. If you were to ask me, I don't know what the financial situation is of most of the people in this room, but I would, I would gander to say, I could find some stuff to do with a quarter of a million dollars. Could you find something to do if somebody had a check for you for a quarter of a million dollars? Yeah. 250K? Sure. Would I exchange five years of my freedom for it? Not on your life. No way. None of you in here would take that deal. Hey, we're going to lock you up, federal prison, for five years. But when you get out, we'll give you 250K. Nobody would take that deal. If I were to get locked up today for that deal, I would get out in June of 2028, my three-year-old Sophia would be eight years old. Zoe would be in the youth group, and Ethan would be getting his driver's license. You think I want to blow those next five years for that kind of money? I can't, I can't come up with a factor. I can't come up with a number of what I would give for five years of my life. Following Steve Titus's release, you can read about this story. He died shortly after due to a stress-related heart attack and his family was awarded a settlement. What do you say to somebody like Steve Titus? What do you say to somebody like the nation of Judah? Yeah, we're going to give you back your crops. We're, we're going to give you some money. We're going we're to try and repair the damages that we've done. What do, you do, what do you do with time? You can't get time back. God says, I will pay you back. And I think, how is that possible? So I ask you, how does God restore the promise? How does the process of restoration take place when it comes to time? In short, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's going to be different for each one of us. I think it's going to be different for people living in this dispensation than it was for the nation of Judah then. I can't explain how or when or where or what he will do to restore you. But based on his nature and based on his character and most of all based on his word, you will be restored in his timing and on his terms. I don't want things on his timing or his terms. I want it in my timing. You guys got stuff you're praying about? I got stuff I'm praying about. And if there were things that I was praying about that I expected to be done in my timing, it would be done by now. If it was on my terms, they'd be a lot different than the terms I'm seeing. I want it on my timing. I want it on my terms. And God says, it's not up to you. I will restore you in due time. I will restore you as I see fit. And it's not going to be the same for all of us. He will restore based on his timing and his terms. But my marriage failed. We're divorced now. He promises restoration. I don't know how he's going to do that, but he will. But my dreams have died. I can't go back in time. He promises restoration. I said what I said. I did what I did. He promises restoration. But my children are grown. I can't raise them again. I can't go back to being their dad when they're little kids living in my house. I can't go back in time. He promises restoration. But my loved one died. I sat there every day in the hospital. I held their hand for months. Now they're dead. How are you going to restore that? I don't know. But he promises restoration in his timing and on his terms, and we don't get to choose those. In my study of the book of Joel, there were some verses I read and they made sense, and there were some that I had to do a little more digging. And I got to tell you, even in chapter 3, there's some verses I read that still don't make a lot of sense to me. But it was easy to understand that verse 25 is the central theme. It was the one that I read the most. And after about 20 times of reading just this verse, something jumped off the page that had been there all along. I was focusing on three words in the verse. I will restore. Those are the biggest three words that he says. That's the biggest promise that we have in this text. But in that, I missed this separate statement of three words. Look at verse 25. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter. Look at the next three words. My great army. Look at the words after that. Which I sent. Are you following this? God sent the locust. We said it week one. God may allow it. We thought that maybe this would get through the filter and there's some bad stuff coming down the pipe and God's going to let some of it hit us. 
but not all of it. God's going to allow some stuff. This is not something God allowed. This is something he arranged. He originated this. He orchestrated the entire event. The plague that you are facing today could have been completely designed by God. Talk about a plot twist. It was him all along. How do I rationalize this? What do I do with this? He who could have destroyed your storm actually designed it. I'm going to read another Spurgeon quote. If anybody ever steals a Spurgeon sermon, you'll know it. Nobody preaches like this anymore, so I wanted to give Spurgeon the credit here, but you'll know it's not me. Listen to what Spurgeon said. Winter in the soul is by no means a comfortable season, and if it be upon thee just now, it will be very painful to thee. But there is this comfort, namely, that the Lord makes it. He sends the sharp blasts of adversity to nip the buds of expectation. He scatters the hoarfrost like ashes over the once verdant meadows of our joy. He casteth forth his ice like morsels, freezing the streams of our delight. He does it all. He is the great winter king and rules in the realms of frost, and therefore thou canst not murmur. Losses, crosses, heaviness, sickness, poverty, and a thousand other ills are of the Lord's sending and come to us with wise design. He who actually could have destroyed your storm, he's the one that designed it. He did it all. He's the great winter king. Look at verse 26. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Regardless of what stage in the storm you're in, probably doesn't make a lot of sense to you. I don't know what I'm going through. I don't understand why this guy's sick. I don't understand why we can't have kids. I don't understand why my children chose the path that they did. I don't understand why they married this person. I don't understand my boss. I don't understand my finances. I don't understand what God is doing with my life. I don't get it. In the midst of a storm, he is the great winter king. Maybe we're not supposed to get it. Maybe we're not supposed to understand. He closes out this theme in verse 27. I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God. There is none else. You'll no longer be put to shame. This is a further reminder that he restores his promise. Letter B relying on purpose. Relying on purpose. Verse 28 begins by saying, it shall come to pass afterward. I want to give you a breakdown of of chapter 2. In verses 18 through 27, that would have been immediate future. This is is what's coming to you right now. Verses 28 and 29 would be distant future. It's actually coming in about 800 years. And then verses 30 through 32 is far distant future, even in the future today, still future tense. So I want you to leave that up there. I want you to to recognize what he's saying in these verses as we read through uh, verse 28. This, again, is distant future. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. This is in reference to what God would do 800 years later in Acts chapter number two. So, so Jesus, is, he's died and he's been buried and he's resurrected. And after his resurrection, he appears to uh, 120 or so witnesses over a period of 40 days. And so 40 days post-Passover, Jesus ascends up into heaven. And you know what happened on the 50th day? Penta, which means 50, is the day of Pentecost. 50 days post-Passover. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come in Acts 2, who gets up to preach? It's Peter. And you know what his text is? Joel chapter number 2. And you know what happens? Joel chapter number 2, verses 28 through 29. Distant future. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your young men are going to see visions. Your young men are going to dream dreams. And This is what's going to happen. The gospel will be all-inclusive. It's not according to race. It's not according to ethnicity or social class or gender or education or language. But in that day, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Then verse 30, this is far distant future, still in the future now. Verse 30 says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth and blood and fire and the columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those with whom the Lord calls. This is in reference to the end times. Again, the day of the Lord is referenced, and I believe this still to be in the future. The plague in Joel's day sent by God had a purpose that extended beyond Joel's sufferings. It extended beyond the people of Judah. It was 800 years in the future to Acts 2, Pentecost, when the Spirit of God was poured out on all flesh. It was 2,800 years at least and counting into the future when these apocalyptic times will come. Again, trusting God means we are believing that His purpose is greater than our loss. Number five is redemption. Number six is restoration. Number seven is the word remembrance. Chapter three of the book of Joel is all about remembrance. I'm going to recap it and summarize it as I can. I I don't have time to properly develop chapter three. Memory is a funny thing. You know, there's things that I remember that somebody said to me uh, when I was in the fourth and fifth grade, and I remember it today. And there's also things that happened in my life last week that I have no recollection of. Maybe your memory's like that. It's funny. It's a little foggy. Some things we remember well, some things we don't. Joel is an obscure prophet. He comes out of nowhere. He bursts onto the scene, writes us 73 verses, and he's about to drift back into total obscurity again. So what God does is he leaves Joel, and he leaves Judah, and he leaves us with four reminders. Four reminders of things that I want you to remember as a result of the locust plague that you went through. Number one, he says, remember my power. Remember my power. You've seen what I did with a few grasshoppers, the locust plague that wiped out your nation for generations. Imagine the full fury of my judgment. I sent grasshoppers to your fields. Imagine what happens when the sun is darkened and the moon is turned to blood. These are things I can do. This is the extent of my power. Verses, uh, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. For behold, in those days at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. The valley of Jehoshaphat, the name Jehoshaphat literally means the Lord judges. This is a picture of the valley of Jehoshaphat. I took this picture earlier this year. If I'm standing at where I took this photo, I'm standing on the Mount of Olives. And right in front of me is a Jewish cemetery. And then you see the green there in the middle. That's the Kidron Valley. That's the valley of Jehoshaphat. Just as a side note, on the other side of the Kidron Valley, uh, there's another set of tombs. You see them right up against the wall. Uh, You read through Revelation, what Jesus is going to do when he returns is he is going to descend and he's going to step onto the Mount of Olives where I took this photo. He's going to step on the Mount of Olives and he's going to go in through the Eastern Gate uh, onto the Temple Mount. And so right before the Eastern Gate is another cemetery of Muslims because the Muslims, they believe that Jesus is coming back and they believe he's going to step on the Mount of Olives and they believe based on Jewish tradition that the tombs that they have will stop Jesus from entering the Eastern Gate. Newsflash for them. That's not going to happen. He's going to make his way through the Eastern Gate. But here you see, he's going to step on the Mount of Olives. He's going to go through the Kidron Valley, and he's going to go into the Eastern Gate of Jerusalem. That Kidron Valley is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. This is where the ultimate judgment is going to occur at some point someday. And so the Lord judges, which is what Jehoshaphat means. He says, that's where I'm going to put my place. That's the place where the day of the Lord, future tense, will take place. It's also where Israel and Judah will be gathered and fully restored to God together. They're not gathered right now, but they're gathering. Verses 4 through 8, I won't take time to read all of it. He says, what are you to me, old Tyre and Sidon, the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? I will return your payment upon your own head swiftly and speedily, for you have taken my silver and my gold, carried them away to your treasures and your temples. Uh, when I was in Jerusalem, many of our guides were, were telling us that there are people who live in America and people who live in Europe and all over the world that are Jewish descent, and they are moving back to Israel. And some of them can't even tell you why. They just, they just feel drawn there. What's interesting is in the tribulation period, there will be 144,000 Jews that are saved, 12,000 from each tribe. They don't even know, most Jews today don't even know what tribe they're from because they kept meticulous records up until 70 AD when uh, the city was destroyed and, and all their records were burned. So most Jews today could not even tell you what tribe they're from. 
but I know of somebody who knows everybody. And he knows what tribe they're from. And 12,000 from all 12 tribes are going to be gathered together. That's what he's talking about in verses 4 through 8. They're going to be gathered together. The Jews for centuries uh, will be gathered together. He says, remember my power, letter B. Remember my patience. Remember my patience. For generations, God was patient with his people. Read through Judges. Read through the Old Testament. He was patient. He was long-suffering. Ever since Jesus, he's been patient with us. The church age, for 2,000 years, Christians who have been redeemed, who ought to know better, and yet his patience will not last forever. He says, ultimately, future judgment is coming. Beginning in verse 9, down through verse 12, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say I am a warrior. He says, hey, these exploiters and oppressors will someday have judgment. Maybe this doesn't bother you, but it bothers me to see people getting away with stuff. Like, hey, how is it that I'm trying to live my life, I'm trying to be faithful to my wife and faithful to my family and faithful to my children and faithful to Jesus, and I'm trying to do it all right and nothing goes my way. And then you read about people and see on social media people who are living all the wrong ways and God never seems to judge them. Has that ever bothered you? Bothers me? It's frustrating. What God is saying here in these verses is it's not always going to be that way. I'm going to be the judge. I have a day of reckoning coming. It's not always going to go. uh, Those wrongs are not always going to go undone. He who is patient will not always be. Letter A, remember my power. Then remember my patience. I want to get to letter C, remember my presence. Remember my presence. The end of verse 16 He says, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. This verse has implications for Old Testament Jews in Joel's day as well as New Testament believers today. Psalm 9-9, the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Remember, even in bad times, even in opposition and war and debt and drought and storms and struggles and plagues, my presence is always with my people. He says here, you're my portion. You're who I've redeemed. You're who I've restored. I want to be in relationship with you. My presence is always with my people. I don't just offer you an escape from the judgment to come. I offer you more than my blessings. I offer you more than my deliverance. I offer you more than my refuge. I offer you myself. I am your portion. He says, remember my power, my presence, my patience. Letter D. He says, remember my promise. This is the promise I want to leave with you. Verse 17, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy. Listen to this. And strangers shall never again pass through it. In Joel's day, their province lacked the ability to exclude foreigners. Anybody who wanted to come through Judah and live there could. Historically, the conquest of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, they were once strangers in their own land. You ever feel like a stranger today? Feel like mainstream is, is one way and, and you're totally different? You feel like you're the weirdo? You're, you're the one who doesn't have it figured out? You're the one that must be missing something? You ever feel like a stranger today? This is how the people of God felt in their own land when they had been taken captive in Joel's day. What Joel is saying here is one day you will never again be strangers. I am your God. That's my promise to you. Verses 18 through 21 are far distant future tense, then and now. In that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, the hills shall flow with milk, the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, a fountain shall come forth from me, from the house of the Lord, the water of the valleys of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, Edom a desolate wilderness, for violence, uh, the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood, but Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, Blood I have not yet avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. This second picture I want to show you is Zion. This is the Temple Mount. This is where Solomon's temple once stood. Today there stands a mosque. I want to say the Muslims have occupied this space, uh, I think 600 A.D. or something. It's been a long time. What God is saying here is, in that day, there will be a temple that stands again, a temple of God. And that day, Edom and Egypt and all the enemies, they'll be brought to justice. And that day, Judah will dwell forever. And that day, I will avenge the wrongs and bring justice. 
Joel brings his book. He begins by bringing our attention, but now he closes with affirmation. Here's what Joel says. He says, God gave me a vision. You can't see it now, but I can see it. I'm on the other side of this thing. And now that I'm on the other side and God has showed me exactly what's to happen, I see where you're at. I know where you're going. I know the steps that he's ordered. You're just going to have to trust him in his timing, on his terms. He says, you can't see it now, but one day he's going to redeem you. He's going to repay you. He's going to restore all that the locust destroyed. I'm out of time and I'm out of text, but I got to give you one more thing before we close. Give me one more minute. Verse 25, let me read it one more time of chapter 2. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. Uh, if you guys could show that picture of that, the guy at the very end of the video. I, we ended the video with this guy, and what he's holding in his hands are dead locusts that have likely destroyed some of this man's crops. I read this story in Modern Farmer, which is a magazine that I'm actually not a subscriber to. You may find that hard to believe, but Modern Farmer is not one of the things I subscribe to. I read this online. This is an article from March of this year. Listen to this. The article says this. Following a multi-year locust plague, organizers in Kenya are making the most of the swarm. The locust plague ran from 2018 to early 2022, the massive locust outbreak that hit Eastern Africa and the Middle East destroyed hundreds of thousands of acres of crops, denying food to about 3 million people. So time out. You remember that pandemic that we had here and everywhere and all over the world? Do you remember that? Africa, who is the most ill-equipped country to facilitate ventilators and stop a crisis like that, they, they were the most at a disadvantage also had a locust plague from 2018 to early 22, okay? Four years, they had a locust plague on top of COVID that everybody else was dealing with. In the midst of a global pandemic, they saw a locust plague of biblical proportions for more than four years. Here's what the article says. Research on desert locusts has revealed that those dead locusts have a rich composition of nitrogen and other macronutrients that actually enrich the soil to help the crops grow back better than they did before. Fascinating. We found this out in 2023, March of this year. By using this approach, using the dead locusts as fertilizer, it also deters future swarms of locusts that are attracted to areas with low nitrogen levels in their soil. So let me get this straight. The, the locust plague came through for a period of four years, and they dropped these high fertilizing nitrogen bombs and these dead carcasses of these locusts that are everywhere. And not only does that serve as fertilizer to help the crops grow back better, it also deters future swarms from coming your way. It doesn't sound so random of a plague after all, does it? What I'm saying is, what would I say to this man? I look at this guy, I don't know him, and I'll never get to meet him. You know what I would say to this guy? holding the dead locusts that have destroyed his crops, the same thing I would say to you as we close this series. And it's this. The plague that you're facing in this life, it is devastating, to be sure. But essentially, God seeks to use it for your good. I don't know how he's going to use it for good. I don't know when he's going to cash in on it. I don't know in what ways you're going to be restored. I have no idea. He's on the other side, and he has a purpose for your pain that involves the same locusts that plagued you to be a catalyst for his perfect plan for your life. As you stand there and hold the dead locust of the plague that you've been through and the storm that you're facing, just know God sent this and he seeks to use it in your life to build you back a greater crop and a greater harvest that can never be taken away from you. I don't know how he's going to redeem you. I don't know how he's going to restore you, but he promises to do so. So Joel says, I, I, I couldn't see it then but I see it now. I'm on the other side of the plague and he's making all things new. He's redeeming. He's restoring. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have taken. And after the locusts, you're in for a harvest that can never be taken away from you. You know why? Because there's purpose even in the plague. Allow God to take the remains of the storms that you've been through and use it in your life to form you into a greater image of Jesus Christ to be used for his glory. Because there's purpose in the pain. 
and there's purpose in the plague. Let's pray. As we begin our time of invitation this morning, I'm aware that there are hurts represented in this room today. I know of some of them. I certainly don't know all of them. There's people here in person. There's people watching online. And I would say there are more people listening to this sermon. There are more burdens than there are people. More plagues represented than there are people. Because there's people in this room, you guys are dealing with stuff. Now, I don't know at what stage you're at in the plague. You, You may be at the beginning. You may be in the middle. You may be at the end, and you can already see the next swarm coming. It's possible that some of you in here have lived your whole life in a plague because you don't have a relationship with Jesus. He doesn't seek to give us blessing and deliverance. He seeks to get into a relationship with us. Salvation's not about membership. It's, it's about relationship. He invites you into a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. There's a million ways to get to Jesus. But I'm telling you, friend, there's only one way to get to God. And that is through the person of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no man gets to God except by me. Today, if you will accept him by faith, he'll save you from your sin, which is the greatest plague you could face. For those of you that are followers of Jesus, some of you here today can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You only see more locusts can't change the plagues that you're facing, but you know that in the plague, God can change you. So I would say to you, don't waste your plague. Bring God the carcasses of the dead locusts and say, God, would you use this in my life? Would you use these ashes to make beauty? Would you use something awful in my life to make something beautiful that I couldn't do myself? Trusting God means we are believing that his purpose is greater than our loss. God has a purpose in your pain. And it usually involves the same locust that plagued you. You can't see it now. But he's on the other side and he's asking you to trust him. He's asking you to come. He's asking you to step out by faith and do something that's uncomfortable for you to do. He says, I will restore to you the years the locusts have taken. Because after the locusts, you're in for a harvest that can never be taken away. So friend, I would tell you today, don't throw up your hands and quit just yet. I would tell you to hold on a little bit longer to the locust that God has brought in your life as he will use it for a catalyst because God has purpose in the pain. He has purpose in the plague. Father, I pray that you'd be with these closing moments of our service. I'm thankful for Joel and his word to us today. God, I pray specifically for people in this room that are walking through a dark time that they do not understand. They do not know how they're gonna get through or they have walked through a dark time and they don't know how you're going to redeem this in their lives. But God, I pray that you would redeem them. I pray that you would restore them. And I pray that upon your word and your character that your presence would go with us even in the storms and the plagues of life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand with me all over the room. We're going to sing an invitation song. If the Lord's spoken to your heart and you want to leave some dead locusts here this morning, I want you to feel free to do that as we sing.